welcome to Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Doyle Lawson, a legendary figure in bluegrass and a Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame member. Today, on the first episode of Season 2 of the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, Daniel Mullins sits down on Doyle Lawson's bus before a quick silver reunion performance in Lexington, Kentucky, to hear an illustrated timeline of Doyle's rich career, including stories of his earnest beginnings in East Tennessee through his time with Jimmy Martin, the country gentleman J.D. Crow, and his own band Quicksilver. So get ready for this epic kickoff of Season 2 of Walls of Time with bluegrass legend Doyle Lawson. So Mr. Lawson, I'm assuming that uh, your first taste in music was singing in church with your dad. Is that a correct assumption? Well, uh, not with my dad, but uh, dad sang with a quartet. And, uh, of course, we went to a little uh, Missionary Baptist church. And, uh, of course, we had the usual congregation singing. And, then, of course, I'd sing along with that. And uh, But even then, you could hear the different parts of the choir. You'd have bass singers and sopranos if the ladies were there, you know, and uh, uh, altos in the, in the first ten or second ten, whatever, you know. And But Dad sang in a quartet, and I never did, I never did sing, uh, sing with him in the quartet, but... Uh, I was uh, I was immersed in uh, old time church singing. What about that four part harmony and those old gospel quartets is so special and so unique? Well, uh, during that uh, period of time, it was uh, uh, throughout uh, the region where we lived uh, in uh, in the Tri Cities and East Tennessee, so to speak, and also. Uh, southeastern Kentucky, southwestern Virginia, a lot of groups would sing. You'd have people that worked out of the church, and and they'd visit other churches and so forth, you know. And so many of them had either a quartet or a trio or duet, whatever. You know, we, we just. But uh, it was very, very uh, common to have that, and uh, they would sing the songs, the popular songs of the day that you would hear on radio by by the professional gospel groups, the Blackwood Brothers, uh, Hovey and the Statesman Quartet, and Lefevers, and people like that. Of course, uh, the uh, the three the three groups I remember most that my dad liked was uh, the uh, Chuck Wagon Gang and uh, the Browns Furry Four. Yeah. And then there was a group out of Florida that worked around Kaz Walker's area in Knoxville, Tennessee, on occasion, uh, they were the Masters family. Johnny Masters, his wife Lucille, he had a son named Owen. Johnny uh, wrote a lot of songs. He wrote uh, Cry from the Cross, uh, and I've done several that he had uh, written. And uh, I occasionally hear from his grandson, uh, even today, you know, uh, and, uh, but, if there was a record brought home, most of the time it was either one, of the, one of the three of those groups. He he loved them, and uh, when I was about eleven years old or so, uh, I got to see the uh, the Chuck Wagon Gang. They came to uh, uh, the Hancock County High School Auditorium, and uh, that place was packed. It would hold six or seven hundred people, and it was packed in the rafters. And they came out. And uh, it was right before 
Dad Carter retired. And I know this because I was doing an interview with a fellow that was creating, a, starting to write a book, or was it got cast by the wayside for whatever reason. But uh, in telling him the period of time that I, the era that I saw, he said that was right before that uh, Dad Carter retired. But I, because I was talking, I said, well, I remember that they had, they had an older fellow singing with him. I didn't know that much about him, you know. And he said, that was Dad Carter, you know. And uh, But uh, uh, they walked out there, had that one microphone and tapped into the little speakers around the, around the audio, the, the gymnasium auditorium. And uh, Howard Gordon playing that electric guitar with the, with a lick that just about, I've never seen but one guy could play that kind of guitar rhythm. That was that's, uh, Jeremy Stevens. Yeah. He could play that. Yeah. And he's the only man I've ever seen that could do that a duplication. Because yeah. it is a rolling thing. I don't know how in the world it is. It's just odd, but it, sound, it sounds right with them, you know. But anyway... That was the music I listened to. Of course, we had uh, on the radio, they'd have a, uh, well, you know about radio, your, your granddad, Paul, and you you guys even today still have the uh, hymns from the hills, I believe. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, uh, the show I remember was uh, uh, Hymn Time in the Country. Uh, and uh, Well, that sounds like a great album title. Well, it was. <laughs> Uh, uh, that was on uh, uh, a station in Morristown, Tennessee. Uh, I don't remember his last name, but he called himself Ramblin' Jim. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember his last name now, but he he. Uh, that was back in the day when when you heard you heard the uh, our bluegrass music right along with the with the the current country music of the day and, and gospel music. You it was just you could never. But they would he'd have an afternoon program. I think it came on at, uh, around 2 p.m. Him, t- uh, him time in the country, and uh, his theme was uh, the that uh, the Reno Smiley, the Little Mountain Church. I was happy Sunday morning. That one, that one, and uh, so those are things that I remember about gospel music. Of course, Daddy singing in the quartet, and them practicing. Uh, they used to practice about once a week, alternate between the members' houses, and that's where they gather in. You know. Yeah. Now, you uh, you can play just about any instrument, but was was the banjo the first one you picked up as a child? No, uh, mandolin. Mandolin was first. Yeah. Okay. When I heard when I heard Mister Monroe, uh, that just altered my life forever. You know? I'm assuming on the Opry. On the Opry. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know who it was. I was, I was a little guy. I was around five years old or so and uh, uh my mother told me who it was she said he she said he's a, a big a big man and he plays the mandolin and he can sing really high because <laughs> it, it just made a difference yeah uh, i was just captivated by it and so i i told her i said that's what i want to do when i grow up and uh it took a while uh before i got a a, a mandolin but I wanted to play one, and uh, so I found out that one of the members of the quartet had a mandolin, and I asked my dad if he would see if I could borrow it. I wanted to learn to play it, and he loaned it to me. Uh, his, his name was Willis Bird, 
he's a one great person, one of the finest men I've ever ever known. And he told me that he bought that mandolin in 1946 when he came out of the army. He said he took $15 of his mustard out pay and bought bought that mandolin. Well, he learned it to me. I learned to play on it, you know. And uh, of course, uh, that was a couple of years or so later. Uh, I got to meet Jimmy Martin. He came home for Christmas. We were living in Hancock County, run actually across the river from where Jimmy was brought up. Now, if I could have walked from our farmhouse down and crossed the river, uh, I could have been to his house probably 15 minutes. But as it was, we had to go all the way down through town and back around, you know, and up to where uh, you turn, go off the Highway 33, go up to uh, uh, what they call Panther. They called it Painter Creek, but it's Panther Creek. And he lived, uh, he was a home place up on the right, you know. And Jimmy pointed out a lot of you know, some stuff that I was doing wrong, and he kind of got me straightened out with how to use my wrist properly and keep my left hand close and things like that. But as I progressed, and how I, old how old were you at that time? I was fourteen time? when I met Jimmy. Fourteen, and uh, was he playing with Monroe at the time? No, or? he uh, he had uh, had JD and uh, and Paul. Okay, Paul hadn't been with him too long when when he uh, Paul went with him in November '57. Paul had been with him about a year, okay. and Crow had been with him probably a couple of years or so. Yeah. And because uh, I'd never, I didn't know who Paul was, uh, but I'm, Jimmy said I, I've got a a uh, mandolin player that I hired, he said, probably got about the best wrist of him I ever seen. You know, he's see his tremolo is just great. He knows how to do the slides with his. I didn't understand all that and all that, <laughs> or hardly any of it. You know, but uh, until I met Paul, you know. But uh, anyway, uh, and as I began to progress, you know, progress with my my abilities as a mandolin player, I got a little restless, and uh, so I'd grab a guitar and. and just play rhythm, you know. Uh, and people remark uh, how much alike that my rhythm sounds to Jimmy's. And I'll be honest with you. Uh, of course, it really helped that I that I worked for Jimmy. But before, when I was at home, that rhythm lick was the way I heard it. Even then, I didn't. I just it felt right, you know. Yeah. And uh, and as it turned out, well, it was f- fairly close to what Jimmy does. But he, there's only one Jimmy Martin and one his rhythm, just like there's only. I don't one, know if the world could stand two Jimmy Martins, of, right? <laughs> uh, the, probably you're right. But you know, usually uh, anybody with uh, with a uh, with a certain amount of greatness about him, about usually one's all you need, like Monroe, yeah, you know, absolutely. Earl. Uh, Bobby Osborne and Crow, you, the list goes on and on about about that. But they they're unique, you know, and that uh, so uh, that I was I started picking with a couple of cousins. We had a little trio, and uh, my mother she does she she named us the Country Cousins because I it was a, my first cousin and either I think my third cousin. And we just sang trios and uh, a mandolin and guitar. Then we added some other people, and f- so finally we had a, we had a mandolin and two or three guitars. And I said, "This ain't gonna work," you know. So we wound up, and and uh, 
a fellow named Woodrow Johnson was a little bit ahead of me in school, and uh, he had a great bass voice. Uh, and he was playing guitar. He played. He loved Lester Flats. He played with a thumb pick. So I said, Woodrow, you're you're a bass singer. Well, let's get you a bass. And uh, he wasn't too keen on the idea because he wanted to play guitar. And I said, oh, we need to have a bass, you know. And so uh, my first cousin, uh, Kermit Lawson, uh, he had a he had a, a real natural, pure tenor voice that it, it came so easy. Uh, he he never had to work at it. Didn't know what he was doing, but if I said, Kermit hit this note, bam, you know. Uh, so he, he could play a little rhythm on a mandolin, a little chop, and if it wasn't too difficult, to make a, uh, do a little turnaround or whatever. So I decided I'd learn to play banjo. And that's, again, I went into it eyes wide open, but thick as a brick, didn't know a thing about a banjo, you know. And, <laughs> Took me a little while to figure out how to get that the 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 second finger to work. You know, the first thumb and the first finger was all right, but I finally got it to where it would would start working. You know, and uh, uh, pretty much just played what I was hearing in my head. I did, I had I took the job with Jimmy Martin in 1963 and didn't even know what a forward roll was. You know? <laughs> but uh, but that was my as I. Progressed and advanced musically. Uh, that that I added that to it. And, uh, then I began to realize that uh, really, if I did want to, and that's that's all I wanted to do was play music. I thought my odds as a banjo player were better for me than to get a job. I wanted I wanted to hook on if I could. I I love Jimmy's music. Of course, obviously I love Monroe's, and I figured if I played banjo, maybe I. My chances might be better as a banjo player than a mandolin player because I took a look at my options. You know, Monroe was a mandolin player. Jimmy had Paul Williams, who married his sister, and Bobby Osborne, Jesse McReynolds, Ronnie Reno was Don's son, and Lester Earl pretty much had stopped carrying a, a mandolin by then. And as had Ralph and Carter, they sell me they 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 had the guitar thing that kind of took over. You know. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into the got into the, through the door was switching switching gears. <laughs> Great lesson in evaluating your options, right? Well, you know, it, 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 yeah, everybody has dreams. You just got to figure out how to, how to get it to start working. Yeah. When did you realize that music is what you wanted to do as a career profession, and nothing else was going to do? When my mother told me who Bill Monroe was. <laughs> that day. Yeah. How yeah. did hearing him make you feel to inspire you to? Well, I've always I always I loved the sound of music. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, even before I became aware of, I knew who Roy Acuff was, and I remember hearing Hank Williams on the Opry. I was a little guy, you know, but and uh, and Ernest Tubb and people like that, you know. Of course, they had the the fruit jar drinkers and all that, uh, you know, the other stuff, and Minnie Pearl and Rod Brassfield and all that. Uh, but you know, Roy was the king of country music. Eddie uh, Arnold, of course, had left the Opry as had Red Foley. But I remember before Red left the Opry, yeah. when he would host the Prince Albert tobacco show, you know. And uh, uh, but then 
for some reason or other, when when I heard Bill, I have no idea who would have been in the band. Possibly Jimmy was there. I don't know who the musician. I didn't care. All I heard was that 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 high, clear voice and that mandolin playing with that authority that he, he played with the authority that he sang with. And I know as a five-year-old, I didn't know the, what authority was, but I just knew whatever he was doing was different than anybody else that I heard, and it yeah. just grabbed me. Yeah. So you've heard us talk about Samson's Hair Care's hair pomade with its all-day hold and signature smell. Now they have something for the other hair on your face, your beard. Fellas, I don't know about you, but I love sporting a beard. It makes me feel so manly, and let's face it, the ladies love it. However, what they don't love is a beard that's unkempt and out of control, and when you're scratching all day like a dog. That's where Samson's Hair Care can help you. They have a brand new beard balm and beard beard oil to help you regain control of your beard. The beard oil is all about stopping irritation. It makes the beard softer and moisturizes the skin underneath so you're not scratching all day. They also have their beard balm, which helps you regain control of your beard, help it lay the way it's supposed to so you don't have them wiry hairs sticking out, and it makes your beard softer as well. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil at samsonshaircare.com, and they know that bluegrassers need to look sharp. So that's why if you use code BLUEGRASS, you'll save 10% off whether you want the beard oil, the beard balm, the uh, Samson's Hair Care Pomade, or all three. Check it out at samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 10% off. It's all at samsonshaircare.com. Code BLUEGRASS. So how old were you when you uh, did finally get your job with Jimmy Martin? I was 18. 18. Yeah, I, uh, 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 in in June of '62, when school was out, uh, I didn't graduate. I and I knew I wasn't going to. I, I probably should have, but I didn't. Uh, but I went to, in the summer. I went to to Morristown and got a job in in a factory, a uh, furniture factory. And uh, and I did that. I, and back in, uh, jobs were pretty hard to get in those days. Uh, so I had to. It wasn't a great job. It didn't pay a whole lot of money, but it paid more than the farm did. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I I worked there uh, probably July through uh, the end of January, uh, July 62 through the end of January of uh, 63. And uh, they called me in on a Friday uh, and said that they – was going to let me go. That I, I was more, I, I was more intent on singing than I was working. <laughs> and uh, now that was on Friday. The next day, I got a call from Jimmy, and uh, he said Billy Edwards was leaving. Billy was playing banjo and was going back to High Point, North Carolina. And he said uh, Jimmy had uh, Jimmy had another sister named Evelyn who had married Ron Campbell, and he lived on the uh, the farm next hours, and uh, so uh, I, that's how. In fact, Ron carried me over to when I met Jimmy the first time. Uh, 
uh, in 58. But he said, Ron, tell me you play banjo. I said, yeah, I've been trying to. And he said, well, he said, would you, would you want to come down and try out? I said, yeah. He said, you got a car? I said, no, but they, they, they got buses. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know any of my songs? I said, I know all of them. He said, you know all of them? I said, yep. If it's on record. He said, well, do you sing? I said, baritone. So I hopped, hopped on the Trailways bus. So on February the 3rd, that Sunday morning, about 4 o'clock in the morning, I got hired as a bench player in the back seat of Jimmy's car. <laughs> <laughs> so it, uh, I thought, he, he said, get your banjo out. Because I got there in the wee hours, and I called out to the, his house, and Barbara said, well, he, he's not here, but he knows you're, you're due in. So I, when he calls in, uh, this is before cell phones and all that, you know. So I'll tell him you're there. Because I'm thinking, man, if he doesn't show up, uh, I, I didn't have enough money to get back home on, you know. So, uh, so anyway, uh, he, he and Billy came and got me, and I got in the car. He said, get your banjo out. I said, here? Yeah. Yes, here. <laughs> A few more choice words, but it was <laughs> sorry. But anyway, uh, so I got Casey, he said, play Cripple Creek, and I played Cripple Creek. Said, You're hired. <laughs> I thought, well, that's easy. And was I ever wrong, though? It, that was not easy. <laughs> Later on, during uh, the next week, we we started getting seriously about uh, rehearsing, you know. Uh, I would struggle on some of the stuff because of, because my role was, was messed up. And, and uh, so he stopped. He said, let me see your forward role. And true story. I said, what? He said, your forward roll. I said, what's a, what's a forward roll? He said, you don't know what a forward roll? I said, all I know is what I hear in my head. So he said, he said, Benny, show him that forward roll. And Benny said, why? Well, here it is. And, and uh, when he did that, it, it, everything made sense. Kind of clicked after that. Yeah, I, I, it was like, I can read, you know. The thing, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. you know uh, and it, got a lot easier after that but it was still a whole lot of hard work jimmy was a real taskmaster wanted you to do it uh, uh, and you know i tried my best but you know, uh, i guess if i if anything in the early days that i would say is probably uh i wish you could have realized that there's no identical person to the one they had before uh you know uh, uh J.D. Crow was J.D. Crow. There's nobody ever played a lot exactly like Crow, yeah. and just like Bill Emerson, you know, yeah. they were stylists, you know, Sonny Osborne, and Alan Shelton, all those guys, you know. So, but my job was to try to play that Sunny Mountain banjo sound, and I tried my best, you know, to to emulate and imitate Crow as best I could, you know, knowing full well that there was, you know, you can't be somebody else. I figured out when I was playing mandolin that you know there's only I wanted to play like Bill I wanted to be Bill then as young as I was I figured out well you can't there's only one that's him you know so get over that you know but uh, I, I guess that's probably the one one thing that I that I wish Jimmy had been able to reconcile was you can get close yeah and that's all you can do yeah 
Had you met Paul Williams before joining the Sunny Mountain Boys? I had not, no. Uh, no, I didn't meet J.D. until 65, I guess. Uh, no, I just knew them both by by the recordings, you know. Uh, but I, I I thought, man, when, when uh, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy and Bobby and Sonny was a great cast. Yeah. Man, they worked so good together. Yeah. Uh, then there was a period of time when he went through that uh, I could tell when he when he hired Paul and that combination of J.D. and Paul and Jimmy that just clicked and it put him him and his sound head and shoulders above where he'd been prior no disrespect to anybody else uh, after he left Bobby and Sonny and today they went separate ways uh, I don't think his band was quite up to to the standard it had been until Paul and JD when they when those two came together with Jimmy, it was like you know it's sort of like when Monroe hired Earl. Uh, I think when Jimmy hired Paul, that was the, the piece that made that Jimmy and the Sunny Mountain Boys sound. That's there was just such a chemistry yeah. between those three. Oh yeah. yeah, it worked so good, you know, and uh, of course. They were they rehearsed faithfully, you know, and uh, and intensely, you know, but uh, that was a good combination. You met you met Paul when you joined the band, and he is still to this day one of your dearest and longest friends. We became immediate, you know. It's kind of like JD was the same way when I met him, and but Paul uh, uh, and he uh, uh, when when I left in uh, in later on in sixty, I only stayed about maybe six months or so, and uh, left somewhat, you know, 18-year-old kid. I was green as I could be, and and uh, I left somewhat disillusioned with the music world because it was a tough, it's tough, you know. But uh, I, I didn't realize that uh, shortly after I left uh, that Paul was going to leave too. Then I found out later on that he had, <laughs> he had actually given his notice before I did, you know. But he went ahead and, and, and did uh, a, a somewhat lengthy tour, and I don't know exactly when he left Jimmy, but uh, uh, but I went in to see him when he got had moved back to East Tennessee or moved to East Tennessee, and he was he was working at that time for the fire department, and because of his Air Force stint, he was able to get you know he was qualified for a civil service job, and but I went by to see him, and we were. Just talking shop, and because uh, you know, man, I, I I love Jimmy Martin. He he's quirky. I knew that. Everybody you know knows him knew that. But I loved his music. I think his records today will stand up with the best of them. Uh, but we were talking more in in the general conversation was about how hard it was to make a living, and in music, uh, irregardless of who it was. That you were working for, it's just hard to make and hard to su- to survive. And uh, and I never forgot what Paul said. He said, "You know, Doyle, he's you may never live to retire, but you got a plan on it." And uh, that stuck with me. And that was before I went to work with JD. So it, uh, I I thought about that time and time again. You know, you might not make it, but if you do, you need to be ready if you can. 
how great of a lesson is that for musicians today that are, I don't know, so used to focusing on the here and now that maybe they're not planning ahead in other areas of, uh, you know, finances and business and whatnot? Well, that's, that's a that's a problem that's been with us not only in this genre of music but everyone yeah. uh, and the problem that we have in, uh, or the culprit I should say is that the the music world that we operate in the problem you have is it lends itself to every worldly trapping that there is and you get sometimes you can get caught up in that and lose your focus on life after you may have to step away or whatever, you know, and and, and it's an easy thing to do. Uh, and I can tell you that it is because I went through that. I, I know how easy it is to lose your way. And uh, so uh, when you're young, you think you're going to live forever. And you say, oh, yeah, I, I know I'll, I'll take care of that. I'll start next year. Or whatever, uh, and too often they they don't they think less about the economic reasons that they need to be playing for or working for. It's a job. You can call it playing music, but playing music is a job. Uh, and that was another lesson I learned from one of my heroes. I, uh, when Mac Wiseman was able to get out and about. He liked to gather sometimes uh, in Nashville. Uh, we'd have lunch at the Palms Restaurant right off of Broadway there. Uh, uh, and uh, one day we were sitting there in the course of the conversation, and I said, well, Mac, you know, I, I said the same thing to him that I said to you uh, about all the trappings of getting caught up in that part and not not thinking about the business part. And I said, when did it start to be a business for you? And without hesitation, he said, it was always a business for me. And it made sense to me, you know. But in reality, uh, too often you don't think about that. You think, man, I, I, I'll worry about that later. I just want to play music, have a good time. So do I. I love playing music. I love having a good time playing music. But... There's more to it than that, and some of them, some of them learn right off, some not so quick. And that's something too that that's what differentiates a hobby and a career is the way you approach it. If it you is. approach it as just having fun with the guys, that's a hobby. If you approach it as a business, that's a career. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I think if if they could, if they could, maybe some of them do look at it that way, then. They're probably gonna be okay, you know. But too too often, though, uh, I see situations where that uh, uh, the business wasn't taken care of, and and they suffered in later times in life. When did you start viewing your music as a as a career or a business? Rather, you know, when when did that f- switch flip for you after that conversation with Paul, or was it later on? Well, they always stayed with me. It's always business first. Uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, we're not immune to getting caught up in in the, the vices of the world too. And I, you know, I went through the, you know, I battled I battled alcoholism for a long, long time, and 
a lot of people didn't even know I drank, you know, and, and that's how I, I said, well, that's my problem. I, went, I wasn't a cheap drunk. It, it just <laughs> took a lot. To, <laughs> but I, I, I held it pretty good most of the time, you know, but the fact was it, it was still out of control. And uh, but at the same time, I did run the business. I, yeah, twenty-three years of this band here, I, I, I did my booking myself, you know, and pretty well. It was pretty well in house. But uh, but it, it's man, it. Uh, I've always said to everybody, even when the the times are good, it's still hard. And uh, this what what we deal with is we live in the, uh, the music world is ever changing, and. What worked last year may not work as good this year, or what worked five years ago won't work at all. Uh, and with the coming of the internet world and the high-tech world that we live in, everything at our fingertips, it gets harder and harder to figure out how to strike a chord with that with the people, because yeah. it's everything is. The entertainment is it's harder and harder to entertain people that with a lasting effect because you know the, the younger people today coming on it's it's a enjoy it now forget it yeah it's it's quick you know go on to something it's a else. scroll through scroll through thing yeah yeah and it, it it's tough what are some other lessons you learned about the music um while a member of the Sunny Mountain Boys. What are some other things you learned from Jimmy, whether stuff to do or not to do? Well, one was discipline. One was being protective of trying to find uh, the sound. Once you found something that the people liked, once you created some sort of identity, protect that. Try to hold on to that. And over the years, the 40 years, soon be 41 years, that I've had to ban, the one thing that I've, that I've been protective of is that identity that was established. And even though the music, it, it will change, it will change somewhat to a degree with, with the personnel that come in, because again, I'll go back to the fact that uh, I don't hire somebody to, to be the clone of the guy that was here before. Yeah. It's unfair to him and, and, uh, and, a total case of stupidity to think I can do that, you know. So I've held on to that. <clears throat> but being being disciplined with music, trying to make it as solid and tight uh, all the time, not getting careless and sloppy on stage. I mean, we're all we all have our imperfections. We all have our our days. When I say everybody has a bad day at the office, whether you're on stage or or uh, in a factory or at the head of a uh, corporation somewhere, you know. So nobody, it's not a perfect world, and uh, maintaining a professional approach to the music. When you show up, those people ought to know that you're there to do business. You're there to entertain them, and I know uh, that's the world we live in these days. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't find fault in the, they, but. People, uh, there's a a vast number of people who say, oh, it doesn't matter what you wear or whatever. Well, guess what? It does. It does. Deep down inside, the majority of the people still like to see you when they go out and they pay good money for a ticket and the band comes out 
and they were underdressed, uh, and it doesn't create that that excitement that they you know the first thing they do when the band shows up and he hits that stage before they ever hear a note the first thing they see is that visual appearance yeah. and I had a guy working for me one time and he questioned the fact that I wanted to wear a tie and a shirt and a suit or whatever and he said yeah, it doesn't matter people just want to they don't care what we wear they want to hear me play I said let me ask you a question Suppose, suppose you developed a heart problem. Are you really worried about yourself? Because you know that ain't you know you're a fairly young man. So you worried. You go to the doctor. You find a specialist. You don't want to go to a dentist for a heart problem. You want to go. You don't want to go to a guy who does ear, nose, and throat. You want to go to a heart specialist. So you find you wanted. You're sitting there in that waiting room. You're already scared to death, and you're waiting for this specialist to come in. So the door opens and this guy steps in and his hair hadn't been combed a couple of days. He's wearing a t-shirt, ragged jeans, and a tennis shoes. How much confidence are you going to have in him? He said, I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, one thing that you I've noticed in the history of Quicksilver in particular is a lot of times, uh, you you guys haven't been a afraid to change your style of dress, and a lot of times it coincides with a, a change in sound. Like what you were wearing when you were doing primarily gospel was different than when yeah. you did more of a country flavor, or yeah, and it's all different than when the band started. Well, when you go through the phases, I mean, there was you know the eighties. The eighties were the urban cowboy days, and we we dressed accordingly. We wore we wore western shirts and jeans. But but our but our clothes were pressed and they cleaned and we wore boots or whatever. It was all but cohesive it visuals, was, as well. absolutely. Yeah. you know. And uh, no, I'm not a stickler. I mean, it's it's, it's uh, uh, I, I'll allow a little freedom in that respect, you know. But there's there's a there's places uh, uh, that you need to change up, you know. And uh, I uh, if I go to a church, uh, you probably won't see me with one of my coats on that is uh, is bright and sparkling. I, I usually wear a suit or a a western cut jacket and slacks, you know, uh, and no hat. Uh, but uh, uh, because it's a different uh, setting, uh, if you go to a church to sing, you shouldn't go. Other, you shouldn't go. With the intentions of being seen, you should go with the intentions of saying something that will touch the hearts of the people. That should be the reason you're there. Yes, sir. How long after you left Jimmy Martin was it before you and Crow started making music together? Oh, it was uh, see, probably a couple of years or so. Okay. What did you uh, What did you do in during I, well, the? Well, I, I wound up in Louisville, Kentucky. I didn't want to stay in East Tennessee. Didn't know what I was going to do, to be honest with you, but I, I figured that uh, I needed to go to maybe a bigger city. Uh, and my, my first wife had two brothers living in Louisville. And uh, I thought, well, you know, the jobs are got to be more plentiful there. And so I went out uh, from East Tennessee. I went up to Louisville and uh, uh, got a job, worked worked a day job, and, and I would play square dances, uh, and I taught 
uh, taught banjo for a while and uh, a few union jobs local in the, uh, the they called one of I'd go do a grand opening or somewhere or whatever and <clears throat> there was a lady around uh, Louisville back in those days her name was Ginger Callahan Ginger Callahan was a uh, kind of a takeoff of, of uh, kind of a cross between Molly O'Day and Cousin Emmy and she had real bright red hair and freckles. <laughs> and but she was an entertainer. Yeah. Played the old time flogging style banjo, you know. But she'd also play guitar. Well I was happening to drive one Sunday afternoon and I had my radio tuned, I believe it was W H A S radio. And I heard this live broadcast remote from a grand opening of a sub subdivision. It was Ginger. And uh, so I went and looked him up. I had a fiddle player, and the fiddle player was uh, Lonnie Pierce, who went on to co-found the Bluegrass Alliance. And I, that's where I met Lonnie, and, and he introduced me to Ginger. Was for some reason she got the notion that she liked my banjo playing, so she'd get me to do a few jobs with with them, you know. Uh, so it's things like that. I didn't do any of that. Uh, uh, later on, I worked with. Uh, uh, another field player named Herb Clannard. Herb was uh, uh, a field player from over in New Albany, Indiana, and he did a lot of square dances. Uh, and uh, he probably had the probably had the market cornered on the, the square dance things, you know. So I did a lot of that stuff with him, and then I I don't remember exactly when I met JD, but I drove from what what I did. I had a banjo student named Harry Bickle. And Harry would take lessons from me, and also let me know that he was also taking banjo lessons from JD. <laughs> so I kidded one time. I said, "Now, what are you doing, taking lessons?" Then going down and ask, asking JD if I'm telling you right, and he laughed. But uh, anyway, <laughs> he told Crow about about me, and and uh, JD said, "Well, have him come up. I'd like to meet him." Because Crow had no idea who I was, you know, because I. Neither did anybody else and at, that, at that time. Well, it went on, and uh, I think it was uh, probably about the middle of 1966, or maybe before that. But I, uh, uh, a buddy of mine, I said, my, my, my ex had driven, she had gone to, to East Tennessee to visit, and uh, we didn't have any children at that time, and so, uh, and I, uh, I, I said, let's go down and look up J.D. Crow. So I went to the Limehouse first in, uh, in Lexington. That's where I thought he was playing. Limehouse was was at Fourth and Limestone Street, and so I went in, and uh, uh, they had more people on the stage than they had in the house. So I, I said, well, I, I knew that one. <laughs> so I walked over to the bartender and asked him if he. He knew where Crow was playing. He said, yeah, three blocks down the street, 7th and Lamb, playing Martin's Tavern. I said, okay. And I looked him up, and, man, that place was packed. It was absolute. You couldn't stir the, with a stick. You know, basically, the kids from the U.K. would come over and uh, you know, get in for a buck, uh, buy beer for a buck, and just have a good time, and they love Crow, man. They love JD, man. He was he was the man, you know. <laughs> and uh, so that's how I introduced myself after that first break or whatever break it was. And 
we just, man, we just became friends, and I sat in with him that night playing guitar. And uh, who else was playing with him that night? Do you remember? Uh, Ed, uh, Ed Stacy was playing guitar. And Gordon Scott was playing mandolin. Bob Sloan playing fiddle. And I believe uh, Jimmy Hatton was a, was a dear friend of Crow's. And uh, he'd come. He worked for the. Kentucky Utilities, but he'd come down and sit in with Crow and him at night. You know, he loved loved to play music. And, uh, and then a little guy playing bass, I don't know his last name, but uh, we, everybody called him Lightning. <laughs> and uh, there was a reason for that, because uh, you, could, you could get a fix on him, and, and if he walked away, you couldn't see him hardly move, you know, because he was that slow. But anyway, uh, but that, the best I recall, that's who the band was. And uh, so I got to where if I wasn't doing anything later, I'd drive up and just to listen to Crow more than anything, and I'd sit, get up and play guitar or whatever. So I got a call from Crow, and Ed, uh, Eddie Stacy had, had uh, contracted hepatitis and was going to be off sick for a while. And to, so would you fill in while he's gone? I said, yeah, sure. So I gave up the banjo thing with, uh, with Herb, in Louisville, uh, and uh, I filled in uh, a pretty good while. And Eddie came back, and uh, I'm still there. And so uh, one night I got, I'd always get there early, and I was still working five and a half days a week in a machine shop in Louisville. So Lightning came in and he sat at the table. He said, you know, he said, we got too many people in the band. Said, really? Yeah. He said, you know, there's, there's J.D. And there's Bobby. There's Gordy. There's Eddie. There's me. Then there's you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah. That's okay. So a little while later, uh, we we played that night, and after the show, I said, I said, Crow, I said, you know, Eddie's back, and uh, I know I'm supposed to be just feeling in, you know, you want me to move on? What, what do we, I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, I thought you knew. <laughs> So that uh, with Crow and he, uh, so that uh, long story short, that that fill-in position lasted uh, a little over five years. <laughs> uh, Eddie to make it, Eddie went back to Eddie had played bass before when when Crow and the Johnson brothers were playing together. Eddie played bass, and then when that broke up, well. Eddie stepped up and played guitar, and they, that's when they got Lightning to play the bass. But Lightning would nearly, literally, almost go to sleep playing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was funny. I've heard of draggy bass players, but sleepy bass players, that's well, another he deal. Could do it. Crow, <laughs> Crow would yell at Lightning. <laughs> He'd jump. <laughs>
Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with the Self Journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the Self Journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code Bluegrass to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code Bluegrass to save 15% off your first purchase. I know a, a big part of the, uh, the opportunity for you and Crow to dedicate to being full-time musicians came with the opportunity with the Red Slipper Lounge. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, we... we uh well, when I went to work with Crow, and, and uh, it got to where that we played every week, three nights a week, and, and if we took on a party or something, you know, a special thing, well, but I was still working and living in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was uh, from my driveway to where I parked in front of Martin's Tavern was exactly 100 miles, so I was driving 200 miles a night and doing you know, uh, nine to one show and, and getting up the next morning, f- f- leaving at work for five thirty. You know, wow. So it was really wearing me down. I, mean, I was, was twenty two years old or so, but uh, uh, it was still starting to wear. On That's me. a tough schedule to maintain. It was right really there. tough. Of course, yeah. Crow, Crow at that time worked for, uh, over here in town in Lexington for uh, uh, Wilson. Uh, I think it was Wilson Industrial Supply. He was a shipping clerk, and uh, so it wasn't wasn't as bad for him because he was here in town, you know. But it was working on me because the weather. Well, we did a lot of it ourselves. Sometimes we'd play four shows a night there, and then we'd go back in the back and pick for another hour and a half or two hours just for us, you know. And and then I <laughs> then I had to beat it for home and, and get time to get ready for work, you know. So, uh, but uh, uh, so I told him, I said, man, I'm I'm gonna have to makes change you know and so he he talked to uh mr wilson and got me uh, got me working uh, he was actually my boss he was a shipping clerk and i was his assistant more or less and so uh we worked together night and day you know for a pretty good while uh, then we were at uh still working the gig at martin's tavern and the fellow that owned the chain of uh, holiday, holiday inns uh, here in town, and he had some. I know he had a couple in Australia, and I don't know how many he had, but his daughter came down to the Martin's Tavern with him. They were young people. I guess they were going to the University of Kentucky. But she just fell in love with, with the bluegrass. And, you know, like I said, man, Crow's an icon. I mean, Crow's, a, it, it's, he's an icon here, you know. And uh, so she told her dad about it. Uh, I don't know how long this, at that time, uh, the Holiday Inn, I don't know how, it was fairly new. And uh, he came down and listened to us and talked to J.D. and they worked out a deal. And Crow said, boys, we're going to go to the Holiday Inn. The bad thing was we started Monday through Friday, uh, Monday through Saturday and we were still trying to work a day job. 
That's well, a lot. That, yeah. <laughs> well, it was killed us. Yeah. So I, I told Crow, I said, man, I'm either going to go for it or and give up the job or I want to give up the music and stay with the job. I can't do both. And and so I, I quit. And uh, it wasn't no time at all that J.D. quit. <laughs> uh, so we, that's, that's what I don't need to worry I never had another job after that. Uh, uh, nor did he. He had, uh, uh, J.D. had a, had a mail contract there for a while, but he, I mean, it was a, it was a, you bid on him and then he, pretty much he had a runner that didn't do it himself. You know, he'd, he'd make a run if he wanted to, but you know, they thought he, had, they thought he'd gone to being a mailman. Well, he, it, in one sense, he was, but not really. He had he been on a, a mail route and got the contract, and you send the truck out, you know. Yeah. So anyway, you know, after growing up wanting to be a professional musician, getting the gig with Jimmy, leaving a little disillusioned, when you're in your you know early to mid twenties and have the opportunity to quit a steady day job and be a full-time musician what what was that feeling like to finally accomplish that well it was it was a it was a, the beginnings of fulfilling a dream yeah. but you know dream i had a big dream and, uh, yeah, so uh but it uh i guess working with jd jd had such an open mind about music uh I mean, he loved uh, Lester and Earl, and particularly Earl, you know, obviously. But but he wasn't set in the fact that we that you had to do nothing but that or that, you know. I mean, he was open to uh, well, uh, we were working and talk. We'd talk about music and and so uh, I said, you know, I I used to sing this song with my cousins. Before I left home, and it was uh, you can have her, and uh, he's oh man, it's Roy Hamilton, yeah. Well, just then we discovered we we both loved the fifties rock, and, uh, and you know the early sixties before the before the British invasion. Uh, yeah. I, I no disrespect, but I, I liked the the prior to that yeah, more, yeah. you know. So that we started throwing things like I'm walking, you can have her. Uh, then uh, we added Born to Be With You then here comes Larry Rice and he has that West Coast rock influence and he, he throws these songs out and we thought man let's, let's do them you know Sin City but, and Devil in Disguise yeah, and, stuff and, like and that. so uh, with, with J.D. he he was he didn't mind stepping out of the the, the, the you know pushing the envelope a little bit and, but you know what we would do when we would do those songs, though, we did a bluegrass, yeah. and uh, it was more or less. We were trying to find things that when we, when we realized that uh, once we got, we did this gig here at, uh, at the, the then the Holiday Inn, working five nights a week. We did a lot of stuff uh, out of necessity, you know, and uh, and and for us too. But then, uh, when uh, when we started, people started wanting to see. After we did Bluegrass Holiday record, people started wanting to see us 
on the, the, the circuit. Well, we couldn't do it a whole lot because we were here five nights a week. And But uh, so then when we started to branch out, uh, uh, we couldn't do Flat Scruggs or Monroe because, well, Flat Scruggs had, had split up, but yet their music was so... Uh, was so current, you know that, and uh, and a lot of people were doing that already, and we thought, well, you know, Crow Crow had that. Uh, he he know he said, look, you can't go out there doing everybody else's songs, you know, and and he was right, you know, and uh, and at that time I would confess and, and admit probably he had more insight and vision than I did, you know. I I just wanted to go play, you know, uh, but yet, uh, but he he was. Quick to embrace other things, you know, other, other bring material from the outside because it, the one thing it did, it created a, a, an awareness for uh, for Crow and Kentucky Mountain Boys later on in the New South because they weren't doing everything else that everybody else did. Yeah. How did that impact uh, your um, vision as a band leader down the down the line, seeing that type of open minded attitude and, and always being willing to change and adapt. Well, it, that carried over even when I when I left JD's band in at the end of August in '71. I went to the Country Gentlemen, who were uh, pretty much the same way. Where yeah. nothing had changed other than the personnel in a way of thinking about the music. Yeah. Uh, they were very open to. Uh, exploration, you know, and and, uh, uh, and they were uh, they were always different. They they wanted to be, you know. They tried not to be the like everybody else was, you know. And, Their reputation was we're different, you know. Yeah, like if yeah. You saw the gents yeah. or heard the record, yeah. you expected it to not sound like everybody else, and it didn't, you know. Yeah, but uh, so how did that opportunity to work with the gentleman come about? Well, uh, I think largely at that point in time, probably through Bill Emerson. Really? Uh, I never did work with Bill when he worked with Jimmy. He was there before me and then after me for a while. You yeah. Know? <laughs> uh, but then I got acquainted with, with him when when uh, I was with Crow, and we started working the bluegrass shows and, and the festivals. And, and I met Bill when he was still with the, the Cliff Waldron. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew Bill Yates, of course, from when he was working for Jimmy Martin. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I never thought about... At one time, uh, Emerson and I, I was still a crow, we briefly discussed the possibility of maybe doing something together. I mean, it was just a just a conversation. Yeah, yeah. More, nothing, never got past that. Uh, and... Uh, and Roy Lee Sanders. Really? Uh-huh. But it never got past the point of just a just conversation. We ought to piece. make music together, you yeah. know, just and casual. That, yeah. that, and of course, it didn't turn out that way. And But it, and it, that never, it never got any, it never even got to a, a planning stage or whatever. But we just, in passing, we, we talked about the possibility, you know, uh, we did. I remember one one time with someone that we sang a few songs together. It sounded pretty good, and, but yet it never got past that. And so, lo and behold, uh, around the first of August in '71, I get a call from Emerson. 
And he said, man, Goodrow's leaving. So he's, he's going, he and Eddie are teaming up. Uh, you want to come to D.C.? I said, well. D.C.'s a long way from Lexington. Eh? Yeah. I said, I don't, well, maybe. So anyway, I, we were playing Gettysburg, and, and we we got together, and we sang, and uh, I was a little nervous. I, now, my only thing was the fact that I, you know, I'm from, from the South, from Tennessee, definitely got a, a, a Southern dialect, you know, as far as my my accent, and uh, so I was a little concerned where would I be, would I blend with Charlie, you know. But uh, but as it turned out, uh, it was the magic was kind of there from the get go, you know. And so uh, we talked about it. I auditioned for him, pretty much about the same shape I'm in today with this this little congestion carrying the sinus and all going on. But uh, they liked what they heard, and so it was decided that I would climb aboard, and uh, so. They they gave me an option. We put you on a salary, or you can come in to sink or swim with us. I said, "Well, I think I'll take my chances then." Okay, and, and uh, but again, they were not a lot different from Crow with being open to ideas and stuff, you know. And because uh, when I left JD, he was already exploring and experimenting with with uh, the, the the period of plug it in and he went through you know we were already experimenting with that yeah. at rehearsal uh, but he again Crow's always open minded about stuff you know willing to try and, and uh, definite ideas about uh, the music as far as uh, sometimes uh, there's a there's a fine line between preserving music and killing it yeah. and you got to know when to when to let go and uh but uh, so i go to the gentleman uh and my thing has always been in arrangement material and finding good songs and things so I, it just fell in really natural and uh and, and bill emerson was just a joy to i mean he he could he could he can hear us. He can, he can hear a song, a hit song, if it was in Alabama. He'd say, "I just heard it." You know, he, he knew. <laughs> he had a real knack for finding good material, and we, we, we both enjoyed, uh, you know, finding songs and arranging them and uh, things like that. And, and and we had a good chemistry on stage. We 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 do things that unrehearsed that would surprise. It would. I look at him. He look at me like. Cause we just thought at that time for the, with the gentleman the same way, you know. So when when he left uh, to go into the navy, the music thing pretty well fell into my lap, and uh, we did. Uh, even though we never got credit for it, Emerson and I really co-produced the the first Vanguard album. But uh, they had a guy named Jack Lothrop who was on the. Vanguard staff, and, and uh, he was there, but but uh, but I I wanted to uh, uh, I wanted to I wanted to know more uh, know more about what was on the other side of the glass uh, from performing. I wanted to get on the other side, and and they allowed me to do that. You know, they 
I'd work my way. I worked my way over there where that I was uh, getting to be a part of all that, you know. So uh, uh, that really uh, gave me a leg up in uh, having confidence as when I stepped away as a sole band leader. Uh, I knew that I could do it. The key is to uh, is to find out if the people would like what you could do, yeah. can do. Yeah. Right? Oh, what were some of the, you know, you were with the, the gentleman for eight years, right? Right, yeah, um, about, near about. Yeah. What, what were some of the uh, the real highlights or some of the uh, most unique experiences you had with the gents? I'd say probably the first, the, the highlight was in January of 72, we made the first tour of Japan, the country gentleman did, and we, uh, of course, I'm the new guy, I came in the first of September of 71, and the so in, 70, in January of 72, I'm on a big bird flying to to <laughs> Japan. And uh, I, I knew, uh, I'd been told that the gentleman had quite a, a following in Japan, but none of us expected it to be what it was. It was amazing. It was like, you know, uh, a couple of times they had to come and hustle us off stage and carry us put us in cars and take us away and things like that, you know, because the crowd was just so excited about about, about the country gentlemen. You know, they were just musical-like icons there. You know. And it was a real highlight, a great, a very enjoyable tour. And uh, I remember riding in the the Shelfie River, the limousines and the, the Japan flag on one fender and the American flag on the other and things like that, you know. And it was, they sold, they sold, Keychains, they they sold country gentlemen cigarettes in packs, you know, with <laughs> and uh, it was it's amazing. Yeah. It is a uh, is that tour when you guys recorded the live in Japan album? Yeah. that's one of my all time favorite. That records. was the, that was the first show we did uh, in Tokyo. Really, the, the first show of the tour. Wow, was recorded. Wow, and so I got through with the concert. Dick Freeland. On the Rebel at the records at the time, he was with us. Uh, pretty much coordinated, coordinated the tour, uh, and uh, so we came off stage and he said, "Congratulations!" I thank you for what he said. You just cut a live album. I said, "Why didn't you tell us?" He said, "If I'd have told you, it wouldn't have been worth a dime." <laughs> you know, he was right. Yeah, we would be really, nervous. We would have yeah. been uptight thinking about that. Yeah. So, yeah, he was right. Women love men who care about their hair, and nothing makes a man's hair look better than Samson's hair care. Hi, I'm Santana Bell, and let me tell you, Daniel Mullins's hair was a mess before he started using Samson's. Trust me, I'm his girlfriend, but Samson's has made a world of difference. It holds all day. Even after a day of riding roller coasters, his hair still looked great. I couldn't believe it. But even with the all-day hold, I could still easily run my fingers through his hair without it feeling stiff or greasy. But the best part is the smell. It's not overpowering. Powering, but it gives off a distinctive, pleasant aroma that lasts all day. Honestly, a man could stop wearing cologne as long as he wore Samson's. It smells that good. Head to samsonshaircare.com to get some hair pomade for the man in your life. Neither of you will be disappointed. Use code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10%. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS to receive 10% off. samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. 
Season two of Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast kicking off in a big, big way with one of my favorite Bluegrass Hall of Famers, Doyle Lawson. It was so much fun sitting down with Doyle in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, before a special reunion performance of the original Quicksilver at Bluegrass in the Bluegrass. It was a big time, and man, did we get some stories today, Ty. Yeah, all I can say is, wow, this is really great, and this is uh, part one of a two-part episode here with Doyle, so we can get uh, even more of those um, uh, tales of his journey from his beginnings on the farm out in East Tennessee, all the way to, uh, really all the way to his uh, Hall of Fame status. And I was so glad that uh, you were able to talk with Doyle on that um, special uh, uh, reunion show over there in Lexington. And uh, so glad we were able to kick off season two with the legendary Mr. Doyle Lawson. I think it made it a little extra special uh, having him talk about playing at the historic Red Slipper Lounge in Lexington about his time working with J.D. Crow that we got to kind of later in the episode uh, because where the bus was sitting was just a stone's throw away from where that Red Slipper Lounge used to be. So it seemed like a, a very appropriate to, time to take a trip down memory lane. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic hearing those stories. I was just imagining you know, him driving through the night back and forth from Louisville to Lexington to play with J.D. and how he uh, got into the band and and – he couldn't even get kicked out. They just kept him in there. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was also cool, um, taking a trip back to his childhood, how much of an impact seeing the Chuck Wagon Gang for the first time made on a young Doyle Lawson. Yeah, I mean, the Chuck Wagon Gang, one of those uh, Southern Gospel uh, groups that's been around for forever and ever. And uh, to see uh, that you know early gospel influence on Doyle, which we've all benefited from here in his great recordings ever since. And it was such high praise that he he gave uh, to Jeremy Stevens of high fidelity as well. When uh, Doyle says, you're the only one that can do something, that's pretty high praise. I know. Shout out to Jeremy. I want to make sure he hears this episode. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have to make sure we send this one to Jeremy because that's that's pretty awesome. Of course, Jeremy worked with the Chuck Wagon Gang for a while before he and his now wife, Karina Rose Logston Stevens, formed uh, High Fidelity. But... Oh, uh, they're uh, one of our favorite young traditional groups in the world of bluegrass. But back to Doyle Lawson, uh, to have been a fly on the wall in the <laughs> in the backseat of the car when uh, uh, Doyle was working alongside the king of bluegrass, Mr. Jimmy Martin and uh, Mr. Paul Williams, that had to have been some wild times. Yes, and uh, I love the um, the props that people give to Doyle about uh, you know having his style bass and that Jimmy Martin you know timing and rhythm. Um, and in fact, we're going to, we're going to try to, uh, beef up our, our playlist and offer, uh, listeners to go to the website or to our Spotify page and listen to some playlists that we're going to create, uh, Paul Williams and, um, JD Crow and Doyle got together to do a, a selection of Jimmy Martin songs, old friends get together, the old friends get together, uh, album, look it up on, um, on your uh, Spotify, but also we're going to add it to our playlist. You can hear all those influences of those early guys uh, who played with him and how they uh, formed uh, both their style and how they really influenced uh, so much of bluegrass music thereafter. I love that the Jimmy Martin style of rhythm and timing was passed down to 
uh, some of our favorite Hall of Famers, but also when you look at Crow and Doyle in particular, two of the most prolific band leaders when it comes to passing the torch and schooling up the next generation of bluegrass. We will get more into Quicksilver in the next episode, but at one time, there was a study done that at one time in the world of bluegrass, I think the number I saw was they estimated that 10% of professional bluegrass musicians had worked with Doyle Austin for at least one time or another. When you're have when you're you've got that volume of people that are going out of your band to be heavy hitters in the genre and you're able to pass to them something as as special and unique as, you know, Jimmy Martin style rhythm and timing, that's where, you know, some of this generational stuff is not going to get lost in the in the world of bluegrass. Yeah, and if folks want to hear some of the um the timeline of that too. Uh, there is a, a two album uh, a recording called uh, "School of Bluegrass" that Dole did, and it's a lot of uh, rehearsal tapes from early Quicksilver sessions, and a lot of just uh, some of his different lineups over the years. Um, check out "School of Bluegrass." You can you can hear how uh, Dole established that sound, which became you know his sound, and, and a lot of the the um, household names in bluegrass that have come through his uh, bands ever since. Uh, it's a great recording to reference to that. We'll also add that to our Spotify playlist. That's a great collection. I've worn out both discs of that collection, but my favorite version of Julianne, hands down, is on that that record. No, nothing against the original, but the live version on School of Bluegrass, you know, is the one of my favorite Quicksilver trios: Barry Scott, Jamie Daly, and Dole Lawson. And it's got twin fiddles on it because a lot of people forget that for a period of maybe a year or two, Dole carried two fiddle players, and it was stinking awesome. So I'm so glad that they got a great live cut of uh, them doing Julianne on that School of Bluegrass project. Of course, Dole formed Quicksilver after some legendary recordings with the country gentleman as well doyle did so much before he even formed his own band that's why this had to be a two-part episode but uh the uh the doyle era and the country gentleman really helped change bluegrass forever absolutely the harmonies that he established there and uh just some of the music that was recorded during that era uh some of the all-time classics we close this episode with him talking about the live in japan album and um one of the fantastic classic recording there and uh, was one of the first recordings you uh, heard, right, Daniel? You were mentioning that to me. That's right. That's one of the first uh, bluegrass CDs I can remember around the house that dad uh, would listen to in, in the living room at, at full blast. And oh, it made an impact on me. It, you can hear the, the crowd and the excitement. And it boggled my mind as a kid, but even still as an adult, that to hear the excitement of fans and knowing that a pretty good portion of them had did not understand the lyrics, and they were that excited about the music and the delivery and the energy and the flash of the country gentleman, it really makes you wish that there was the capabilities to have live DVDs back in the early to mid-1970s. Uh, I would love to, to have the uh, ability to see what was going on on stage as well as hear it. Yeah, agreed. What a fantastic show that must have been. There's so many, uh, go into a time machine to go back and see so many epic bluegrass performances. That would be one going to the lounge back in Leskington would be another one. Um, we must have, we were born a little too late for that, Daniel, but so yeah, he, he wraps up talking about, uh, that live album and his time in the gentleman, and then gets right into, uh, the uh, formation of Quicksilver here in this next episode, episode two of walls of time. 
uh, and uh, gets personal and talks about uh, some uh, personal decisions that he made. And there's some really great uh, epic and emotional moments uh, that we get from Dole and uh, the uh, second episode. And I'm really excited for folks to hear uh, that part of his story. Be sure to listen and subscribe to the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Uh, you can also go to our website, wallsoftimepodcast.com, where you can listen to the episodes. And if you would like to support the podcast and be rocking one of the brand new super soft Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast t-shirts, you can find those on our website. Yeah, and of course, social media on Facebook and Instagram at Walls of Time and uh, Walls of Time Pod on Twitter. Follow us, use the links, go to playlists, listen, discover, or rediscover some of these great classic Dole Lawson recordings. Over the next week or two, you and I need to uh, try to dig out some of our favorite throwback picks of us with Doyle and post them on social media. That's like a plan? I got an epic one with me and... Uh, Dole and Paul. Nice, nice, awesome. What we, maybe we'll have a a throwback throwdown or something. So everybody should uh, be sure to follow the fun on social media and uh, see what we uh, have up our sleeves. Next time on Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast, part two of our conversation with Bluegrass Hall of Famer Doyle Lawson. Thanks for listening. The Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.